this is Roly Crump. I'm an ant imagineer, and you're listening to Stories of the Magic. Welcome to Stories of the Magic, an unofficial Disney podcast with your host, Randy Crane. Hear stories from Disney cast members, Imagineers, artists, and more right here on Stories of the Magic. And now, here's your host, Randy Crane. Welcome to episode 59 of Stories of the Magic. I'm Randy, your host. Thank you for joining me. Today, we finish up my interview with Disney legend, Imagineer, and more, Rolly Crump. As before, I got to ask a number of questions I've never been able to ask, this time more about the people he worked for and with. Now, as I mentioned last time, in case you have sensitive ears, there is a little bit of PG-level language and subject matter in this interview. You'd hear worse in almost any primetime TV show nowadays, but since the interviews are usually 100% G-rated, I thought you should know. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the leading provider of premium digital spoken audio information and entertainment. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at storiesofthemagic.com audible. There's over 150,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player, including my own book, Faith and the Magic Kingdom. In this episode, Rolly talks about bringing It's a Small World to Walt Disney World, including the changes he made, some because he wanted to, some because he had to. Yale Gracie, Mary Blair, Eric Larson, Bob Gurr, John Hinch, Rolly's mentor, and of course Walt Disney. There was so much about each of these, I'm not even going to try to tell you a summary of what he said for each one, just listen for each part. We also talked about what it was like for him and others in the company when Walt Disney passed away. Playing gags on each other at the Disney studio and in Imagineering, I almost left one of these stories out, but it was really just too rolly to cut. Another great story about vodka. Now there's a phrase I never thought I'd hear in this podcast, but it really is a pretty funny story. Whether he ever thought he was doing something special while he worked for Disney what it's like to get all the attention he's getting now, what he loved most about what he did. One of them is something you can still see today if you visit Disneyland. If there's anything he's never been asked that he'd like to be asked, a thanks to Jeff Heimbuck for his work with Rolly on It's Kind of a Cute Story and why it was so different from other authors who'd wanted to work with him. What inspires him? His advice to you for following your dreams? And of course, shameless plug time, though we don't actually call it that in this one. That's still what it is. Now, a brief word from a fellow podcaster and friend, and then it's time to turn the page and continue this story. My name is Al. And I'm Joyce. And we're We're huge huge Disneyland Disneyland fans. fans. In fact, we love the Disneyland Resort so much, we host a podcast dedicated to the happiest place on earth to share that passion with others. That's right. On our show, Tales from the Mouse House Disneyland Podcast, we share current resort news, some tips and tricks we've learned over the years to help make your Disneyland Resort vacation the most magical experience ever. We uncover little-known and often-overlooked gems we like to call hidden treasures, and even review the attractions and places to eat that make the Disneyland Resort so much fun. And if that wasn't enough, we even share some video episodes to help keep you in that Disney magic state of mind. If you're a longtime fan of the Disneyland Resort, or you've just recently discovered the magic, this podcast is for you. You can find Tales from the Mouse House Disneyland Podcast at www. Talescast.com and in iTunes. And remember, make, make it, it a, a Mickey, Mickey day. And now, this week's interview on Stories of the Magic. And then I wanted to ask you about one other project before we talk about some people for a little bit. And it's simply because you kind of carried it through to a couple different locations. Uh, as I understand it, you were also involved in bringing It's a Small World to Walt Disney World. Yeah. What did you have to do 
Well, first of all, what was your role in doing that? Well, to design the damn thing. <laughs> okay, that's what I thought. Now, you know what happened, and I talked to Walt about this. When you were in uh, Small World and you were in the boat ride, and you're looking down and you can see the floor, and when you can see the floor, you can see all the, the conduit, you know, which really was ugly, and there was nothing you could do about it because you had to have that conduit on the floor. So I told Walt at one time, I said, you know, if we'd had the time, I said, I think we should have had water to the sets. And, of course, that's eventually what they did in the Pirates. It's all water to the sets. And so when we decided to do uh, Small World for Disney World, that's what I did. I had them fill the whole thing with water, just like the Pirates. And I was very proud of that. I was also proud of the fact that, I didn't like the finale that we had at Disneyland, and that was nobody's fault. It was designed in two days before we went to the World's Fair, and it never got changed. So I designed a whole new finale for Disney World, which it turned out to be, as far as I was concerned, it was just gorgeous. So I got that one done. But the other thing that's really bizarre, and this gets back to my buddy Dick Irvine, I wanted to build a little small world village. See, they didn't have enough space to do 300 feet of the facade like we have at Disneyland, or they didn't want to spend the money to do that facade. So they just had a little tiny area that was given to me. So I wanted to build a little village, and you actually, the clock that was there, there would be a similar, almost identical clock, but you walked through the clock. You walked underneath the clock, and that was the entrance to the ride. And then all the other little buildings were little shops that were there, and they would all be done in Mary Blair style, but with actual materials, you know, real bricks, real tile and everything. So I was trying to get that done. And at the same time, it was the same size as the uh, ride at Disneyland. And then Dick came in one day and says, you got to take 200 feet out of the center of the ride. I said, what? I had to go in and take 200 feet out of the center of the ride. Wow. And, and that's after it was designed and after the sets were built. So I didn't get along too well with him. (laughs) (laughs) He was a a nightmare to live with. The only good news was I could take him on any given time. And I do remember I grabbed him by his tie once. I think he was always afraid I was going to kick the crap out of him one day. So (laughs) (laughs) there's many stories about Rolly and Dick. But they all turned out okay, you know. That's good. I overrode him. Since we're talking about people, and we maybe won't talk necessarily about you and Dick Irvine, but you've worked with some pretty great people, and many of them I know you have great respect for. So just I want to take a couple of them kind of one at a time, and I'd love to hear any memories or stories that you might like to share about them, starting maybe with Yale Gracie. Yeah, yeah. Well, Yale was uh, a little uh, Geppetto. And he used to do all kinds of crazy little things for himself. Went over to his house for the first time. As you walked up to his house, there was these little little pipes up in the air. And on the top of the pipes were little crystals. And I thought, gee, those are kind of cute little crystals. And they were the lights going into his house. They, they were little bulbs in there that lit up. And I thought, I wonder where he got those crystals. And I said, yeah, where, where'd you get those beautiful little crystals? He says, they're salt and pepper shakers. <laughs> <laughs> and if you really looked at them, they were little glass salt and pepper shakers. So he had seen them, bought them, took the cap off, and then just slipped that over the top of the light bulb. And so I just admired him to no end. And, of course, he was deaf in one ear. And I know that when I used to talk to him, I thought he was ignoring me, but I think it was because he really couldn't hear me. (laughs) But he had an incredible little dry sense of humor. The only thing that was a a little awkward, and it was nobody's fault, but when he and I were put together, it was his first chance to be working for WED, he really kind of felt like he should be in charge. And so I would try to make comments about things that we were designing, and he'd say, no, 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 that doesn't work. I said, okay. So after a while, I just thought, I'm not going to fight with him. You know, it's his little place in the sun and let him have it. And so I ended up just building the boxes of the models that we built to show Walt. I would build the boxes. But the funny part about it was whenever Yale happened to be gone and Walt would come through, Walt and I spent a lot of time together and I'd tell Walt was going on. And so I think Walt felt confident that I knew... I knew what I was doing. And I, you know, it was just one of those things that I, 
I was always very comfortable with Walt, and I think there was a comfortable level that he and I reached together, and uh, so that really helped. But there was a lot of jealousy about Yale, which was really sad. He did the fireflies, you know, in the Blue Bayou area, and then he did all the fire effects that were in the uh, Pirates of the Caribbean. And all of his ideas were so simple. They were beautiful special effects, and they were so simple. Well, all uh, Roger Brogy and the guys over at Maple really were upset with him because they wanted to do all that. They weren't asked to do it, but they wanted to do anything that was mechanical. And, of course, Yale was doing little mechanical things that were, you know, the fireflies are nothing more than a little grain of wheat bulb on a long black wire, and then there's a little black piece of tape on one side of the light, and then there's a fan that blows it. And so when this little cord is flipping around and with the black tape on one side of it, it would cause the light to appear and disappear. And, of course, if they had designed it, God only knows what they would have come up with. But, you know, he did stuff so simple, and I, I just loved it. He didn't get enough credit, and that upsets me a lot. And he used, to, he, he used to complain to me about that. He said, how come other people get their names somewhere? He says, we don't get our names anywhere. And I said, yes, we do. I said, every, every week when we get a check, we get a check from Walt Disney. <laughs> <laughs> I guess if you have to pick some place to have your name – on a paycheck is a good spot. Yeah, it's a perfect place for it. <laughs> now, what about working with Mary Blair? Oh, that was a delight because she had been a goddess all my life as a, as a designer anyway. Uh, I loved her work to begin with. And, and then I used to, I think I've told this story many times, of the fact that back in the 40s when you went to the matinees or the movies, there was always some little newsreel or something going on. And every now and then, I know when they did Saludos Amigos and they all went to South America, I remember seeing the, all the uh, designers and Walt and his wife getting on the airplane, and I saw this lady, and I thought, that's the only woman I've ever seen with all the designers. I wonder who the hell she is. Well, when I got into animation, I talked with Eric Larson about Mary, and then he told me who she was and how great she was and what she did, and then he started telling me all the different sets that she had designed in the different films. So I uh, I was madly in love with her, her style. She also did some uh, commercials uh, that were real stylized. She did a Paul Mall commercial that I just thought was magnificent, and I didn't know she did it. And I just thought God, it was real stylized. I thought, that's very interesting for a cigarette commercial to do graphics like that, and then found out later that she had done it. So I was an admirer of hers, and when I found out that she was going to come and do the styling for us for Small World, I couldn't wait to meet her, and which was great. And uh, we both loved uh, color out of the tubes, so that worked out good. You know that we and we had a, the same feeling of flair for for design. So yeah, it was it was a, it was a great little marriage we had. Wow, that's really special to hear. And then you just mentioned Eric Larson, who we talked about. A while ago, which you worked with on 101 Dalmatians. Yeah. So what was it like with him? What was he like? Eric had been one of the directors uh, when we did Sleeping Beauty. And uh, I happened to work for one of the assistant animators that at one time had worked for Eric. And um, Eric was looked upon as being the, the best director for Sleeping Beauty. And there was uh, Wolfgang Reiderman was another one, but he was an entirely different person. You know, he was kind of a wild guy and a wild animator, where Eric was much more of a sensitive person, and Eric wanted everything absolutely perfect. So I do know that I had done a scene uh, for the animator I was working with, and they'd taken the scene in, and they were looking at it with Eric Larson. And when he came back to the room, he said, you know, Eric really didn't like to clean up on that scene. And I said, what? He said, no, he really didn't like it. He wants you to redo it. And I said, oh, my God, if I did that bad of a job, I should probably go home because if I can't please Eric Larson, I I feel terrible about that. So I was really upset about that, and I redid the scene and everything because he was a stickler for detail. So that ended that, and then it wasn't until, I don't know, months later or whatever, they said, um, Eric Larson wants you as his assistant. And I said, what? 
I couldn't believe that. And evidently, Hank Tannis had, had had me redo the scene and showed him the second scene that I did and evidently uh, told uh, Eric that I really was an okay guy. So Eric hired me as his assistant, which was very special. But the interesting thing about it is that once the film was over with Sleeping Beauty, he was no longer a director. He was sent back to animation, and I think that broke his heart. Mm. I think he'd been a director, and he'd reached that point, and I think he always wanted to stay a director. He didn't want to go back to animation. So he kind of was in a kind of a little state of depression when I started working with him. And so uh, he was a sweetheart of a man. You know, everybody had little radios in their rooms. So I asked him what was his favorite station. So I brought in a radio, and I would play only his music. And I got bottled water, and I used to give him a back rub every day. So he loved me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, because I really felt sorry for him. I really did. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, I, I started learning a lot from him. Just by osmosis, you know, just being with him, I learned a lot. And uh, he was just a sweetheart. And uh, and he dressed like a banker. Every day he came to work, he had a suit on and a tie. And I just thought, that's great. And I think the other thing about Eric was that he loved my craziness. Now, he was a, a Mormon. And, you know, he had the ties with the church. A part of his salary went to the church which was kind of interesting. Hmm. And for me to come in and, and hang a marijuana poster in my office and have him let me do that, I thought was pretty special. And then as time went on, I was designing these other dope posters, and I'd work on them sometimes at, at work in my office. And um, I do know I did heroin airlines. And while I was working on the heroin airlines, and he knew I was doing it, he came out and he says, I've got a line for you to put on your poster. And I said, what's that? He says, all of our stewardesses are heroines. <laughs> <laughs> and I did, and it's on the poster. So he gets all the credit for that line that's on the heroine, I mean, the, the heroine, <laughs> heroin poster, heroin airlines. <laughs> that's really funny. But anyway, and he was real sweet. He used to take me out to lunch. And a lot of times I was getting ready to leave the company anyway because I just I thought it was time for me to move on. And every time I would talk to him about that, he'd go in and get me a raise. Seriously, he'd go and get me a raise. And so I thought, oh, God, he's a sweetheart. Yeah. yeah. It sounds like that was a great relationship for both of you. Oh, it was a beautiful relationship. That's wonderful. I know you worked with a lot of other people, but before we get to the main one, is there anyone else that you worked with? that you want to talk about? Any other memories of people that stand out? Oh, God, they're all great. Probably uh, Bob Gurr. <laughs> Bob Gurr was one of my favorite people to work with because I knew that if they gave me an assignment and it had any mechanics in it, I immediately would call Bob said, Bob, I need your help. And he loved the fact that I would ask him for help. And I think I'm the only one that I know of that would go to people and ask for help. And I realize there's only so much I can know and I should always have pros that, that I'm working with. And so Gurr was one of one of the ones. I think um, probably John Hinch is the number one because when I started working at WED, I didn't know what I was doing. And every time they'd give me an assignment, I would go to John and say, John, what do I do? <laughs> and he'd sit down with me, and he'd take me through it very simply of what I should do. And so he really was my mentor. He really taught me a lot. In fact, he taught me the uh, actually the formulas. And there's a lot of formulas of doing show design and rides and attractions. And his formula was the one I always worked with. And the formula basically was do your homework. And the one thing he taught me was the first thing you do is find out what the subject is and, and learn it from top to bottom. And the other thing that he taught me, which I passed on to my son, was always have more answers than they've got questions. And he was good about that because every time I would be doing something, he'd start asking me questions. And he really would go after me with the questions. And I'd always had a, more answers than he had questions. And I I think he felt good about that. I'm sure, yeah. But those are the people I worked the closely with. You know, there was, I'm talking about people that I was really on a daily basis close with, you know. Sure, right. Thank you for that. Sure. And now... Here's a question that so far I've never been able to ask anyone, and you've already shared some of these, but if you maybe have a couple more, I'd love to hear it. Okay. Would you please tell me some stories about working with Walt Disney? Oh, the old man. Yes. Oh, 
God, yes. I don't know. I just I think the the, the bottom line story was that um, when I first started working at WED, and I'd sit in the meetings, all I did was study him. I don't think I said one word the first year or two that I was in meetings with Walt because I was more interested in seeing how other people reacted with him and what his personality was like, uh, what his body language was like. So I really studied him. And uh, then I felt that I really began to understand him and know him. And I think that the problem with all the guys that, that knew him, they'd known him for so long, they just accepted him the way he, the way they always knew him. But to me, he was a different animal. He wasn't in animation anymore, and this was a whole new business. And so he was approaching it with a whole different pair of eyes. And so I could see that a lot of the times when he'd ask questions or something, they were having problems answering him, and they would kind of maybe go a little to the right and go a little left, and I used to call it singing and dancing. And I thought, I'm never going to sing and dance with this man. I'm going to give him direct answers when he asks me a question. And a lot of times he'd ask me something, I'd say, Walt, I don't know. And not one other person that I was ever in a meeting with would say to Walt, I don't know. They would kind of stammer and stutter and come up with some little stupid thing. But the thing that I realized about him was, even though he knew that they were singing and dancing, he loved them because he knew that they were doing the job, they were doing the best they could, and then he just kept whacking at them. They'd do fine in the long run. So I think that the most important thing I learned was getting to know the man. And I do know that I watched his hands. There were certain two fingers on his hand. If he started tapping those on the table, that's when I said, I think I'll go to the bathroom. Because that's when he was, he was getting upset about something. But he never would totally unload. I only saw him unload twice. And one of them, luckily, was Dick Irvine. <laughs> I'll never forget that. That's probably why Dick didn't like me was because I was there the day that Walt chewed him out, and nobody else had ever been with with him when that happened. So that was kind of interesting. Now, uh, the thing about Walt was he always put the public first. No matter what it was, he thought of the public, and that's why – he had his apartment down there, so he would go out on the weekends when he was down there, was staying at the apartment. Nobody would ever recognize him because he he was kind of hunched over. He had a bad back, and he never combed his hair, and he dressed real real loose. He'd be in line with all the other people, and they wouldn't know they wouldn't know that that was him. And the the funniest part of all about it at all is if he had a had a walkthrough with Walt with some guys from Wed, then he'd dress up. And I know that John Hench would uh, always be on that walk through with him and walk behind him. And people would come up to Walt and say, are you Walt Disney? He says, no, Walt Disney's the gentleman behind me. And he'd point to John Hench. So they'd go over to John, and John would actually sign his name, Walt Disney. So John had learned how to sign his Walt beautifully. And I heard that used to happen all the time. And John got the biggest kick out of it. And I think Walt did, too. I think he thought that was great. But no, he uh, always put the public first. I know there was one time when he was staying at his apartment, and uh, it was like 3 o'clock in the morning, and they were jackhammering up Main Street. They were putting in new uh, tracks for the uh, streetcars. And Walt came out, and he couldn't sleep, so he had a sack of oranges. So he's sitting on the curb eating oranges and uh, watching these guys jackhammer up the street. Finally, one of the guys recognized Walt, and he stopped and he said, "Mr. Oh, Walt, oh, we're sorry. Did we? Oh, God, did we wake you up?" And because they realized, you know, he had his own apartment, and he said, "No." He said, "It's more important to get these tracks in the street tonight than for me to lose a night's sleep. That's no big deal." Will you guys sit down and have an orange with me? <laughs> so they did. They went over and sat down and had an orange with him. <laughs> so, I mean, this was just the way he was all the way down the line. You know, he uh, he was incredible. Absolutely incredible. Sounds like an amazing person to work for and to know. Oh, yeah. and Yeah, but then the thing was to, to be able to feel comfortable with him. I know there weren't too many people that felt comfortable with him. They would, a lot. I know Dick Nunes really spoke up with him. So I think Dick Nunes felt comfortable with Walt because Dick was Dick, and uh, that was that. So that was good. So I admire the people that spoke up to Walt, you know. Right. 
and it sounds like you were one of those to to yeah. some extent. Anyway, you were pretty comfortable oh, with yeah. him. Well, I wasn't afraid to speak up to him because that's what I said. You know, I said, uh, I'm not going to be like anybody else. I'm just going to be honest. And I think he loved my honesty, you know. Sure. Anyway, when he asked me what I thought of the Tower of the Four Winds, and I thought it was a piece of crap, I know that nobody else would have ever told Walt to his face a piece of design work that they did that was a piece of crap. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to ask, and if you'd rather not answer, that's fine, and we'll just move on. What was it like for you... When Walt passed away. It was, well, it was terrible. I think all of us that knew Walt cried all night. So it was terrible. And, you know, the thing that was so terrible about it was once he, he died, the day that he died, everybody knew the spirit of the company was gone. It was never the same. Never the same. And, I mean, that it just that everyone felt, and this was beautiful, everyone felt they worked for Walt. Even if they didn't know him or didn't work with him, they still felt that they worked for Walt. And I think that was just a beautiful thing. I know that um, a good example was, and then how Walt ran the company. When they were doing 20,000 leagues, I went out there one day to take a look at when they were building the sets, and I ran into a kid that I went to high school with. And I said, hey, what are you doing? And he says, well, I'm one of the carpenters. I'm a set carpenter. And I said, oh, my God. I said, that's great. I said, how do you like working here? He says, this is the best motion picture company in Hollywood to work for. He says, they treat you like a human being here. He says, the other ones, you're just slave labor. He says, here they have coffee breaks, they have donuts. He says, they treat you like a human being. And that went right on down the line. I think that's another thing that's so important. It came from the top. And for me to hear that about all the other motion picture companies, it kind of gave me a clue on a lot of the stuff that was going on. So anyway, yeah, he always treated everybody beautifully. That's a a great testimony to what kind of man that he was. With that, I'll go ahead and lighten things up just a little bit here to continue. I know that you guys at WED occasionally played jokes on each other, like what you did to the janitors one night. Do you have any favorite things that you did uh, to or with each other? Yeah, well, that goes back to animation. Growing up in animation, everybody played gags on everybody every day. And it wasn't a day that didn't go by that there was some sort of a gag that was played. One of the best gags that that was played on me was I actually bent over one day and I ripped my pants. The seat of my pants came completely off. Well, one of the gals said, you know, I've got some needle and thread. Let me fix your pants so would you take your pants off? And I said, sure. So I wrapped something around me. I don't know what the hell it was and gave her my pants. Well, of course, then they let my boss, who was, uh, I'm trying to remember who was my boss at that time, Andy Ingman. They called his secretary and said, would you have Andy pretend like he wants to talk to Roley and have him come to the office? And so they did. I get a call and it was Andy's secretary. She says, Andy wants you to come in and wants to talk to you right now. And I said, well, it's a little it's a little awkward. She says, what do you mean it's a little awkward? He wants you in here now. And I said, I don't have any pants. <laughs> and she said, what? And, of course, she went along with the gag, and she pretended like, you know, well, I was lying to her, and I didn't want to go in there, but no. <laughs> but those, those, you know, one of the other best gags they had that was played on me was – when you have a light desk, you know, you have a tube, uh, a light tube behind the glass that you work with. And what they did was that they get a smoked herring and they would tape it to your tube when you weren't in the room. And then you turn your switch on and the tube would light up. And probably within 45 minutes, it smelled like a fish market because <laughs> it would heat up that smoked herring. And, and I, that, they did that to me once, which was kind of neat. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, the gags just went on and on. And, of course, we carried the gags on all the way over to a WED. And I think one of the best gags that happened at WED, which was kind of cute, was when uh, Blaine Gibson got a hold of me. And he said, Roley, he said, um, I've got the cave woman here that we just got back from the Disney studios that we're going to put in the Ford ride. He said, and they'd made this cave woman and she was a quite a healthy cave woman. Uh, she was beautifully and well endowed with no, no top on her and just a vicuna wrapped around her. And he said, Roley, he said, 
would you mind uh, taking your shirt off and standing by her? And I've got a Polaroid here. I want to take a picture of you and her together to make sure the value of, of your skin. He says, I like the color, but I want to sure that, make sure that the values are, are the right value. And I said, oh, I'll do better than that. So I took my shoes off. I rolled my pants up. I took my shirt off, and I, I wrapped a vicuna around me. So then I went over and I stood by her and then I put my arm around her and then I started thoroughly enjoying her with my hands. And he was taking all these slap shots of me. So it was kind of hilarious. And we thought that was kind of funny and cute and everything. Well, he put all those away. And one day, a few weeks later, Walt was over and Walt went to ask him about something. He said, well, I think I took a Polaroid of that. And Walt said, oh, what was it? So he's going through his Polaroids and all of a sudden, he comes on the, onto the Polaroids of Roly attacking the cavewoman. And Walt says, what's that? And I was standing there and I thought, oh, God. You know, I didn't know what was going to happen. So I got up and walked over to get a 7-Up to settle my stomach. Meanwhile, Walt's got them all laid out in front of him, and he's busting out laughing. He's just really, really enjoying it, getting a big kick out of it. And the next thing I know, I turn around, and he's standing there, and he's looking me straight in the eye. And he, this one friend of mine just asked me, he said, well, what's Walt doing? I said, he was looking at the pictures of the cavemen. And I, and he said, what did he see? And I said, he was laughing. So when I turned around and looked him right in the face, he says, that's right, Roll. He says, he was laughing. But that wasn't a gag. That was just something that we did that was kind of fun. So, mm-hmm. But but that, that carried on as long as we had the old wed. And we would have carried that on even after Walt passed because there was a certain amount of humor. Uh, if you grew up in animation, there had to be humor and gags in it and that you used, you know. So it was it was fun. It was fun. Sounds like you know, yet another example of what a fun place to be that must have been at the time. And I know that things have changed over the years, but just to have had that is really special. Oh, it was a ball. Yeah, it was a ball. Well, like I said, Walt gave you freedom. I mean, there was a freedom that was in the atmosphere for everybody. I mean, we had one uh, one of our, uh, that did all of our graphics. He came to work in the morning. The first thing he did was go over, and we had these bottles of juice. So he got a bottle of orange juice every morning. He poured it halfway into a cup, and then he opened up his drawer and took his vodka out and filled up the rest of it with vodka. So here's the guy sitting there, you know, uh, <laughs> drinking orange and vodka. Now, there's another great story about vodka. I used to get kind of monopolo vodka from Trader Joe's, and so I used to tell everybody about this great Polish vodka. And so I kept a bottle of it in my desk. And so we were in there, and one day I was pouring a little shot of it, and I was having a little shot. And then I was working with Jim Steinmeier, who was a, a great, great designer. And I said, do you want a shot? And he said, oh, no, no, I don't want one. So I said, okay. So I put the bottle back in the drawer. So he had to come in. They asked him to come in and give a major presentation to one of the clients that they were dealing with on Epcot. And Jim came into my office. He says, you know, i got to talk to these guys. And he says, I don't even know what I'm going to talk about. And Jim was really glib. I mean, he was very good. He was one of the best presentators I've ever met. So I said, well, you just got to do the best you can, Jim. And he goes, yeah, I'll go ahead. Well, when it was over, (laughs) he came straight out of the office, went directly to my desk, took the bottle of vodka out, and filled up a water glass with it and started drinking a big glass of straight vodka out of a water glass. (laughs) And then Marty Sklar came in, and he's standing there drinking a glass of vodka right in front of Marty. Didn't bother him at all because he needed that shot afterwards, and I thought that was beautiful. (laughs) Wow. I think there may be a few of these, but was there a time that you first remember thinking, I'm doing something really special here as part of this, working for Disney? Well, um, no. I don't think I ever felt I was doing anything special. I felt that what I was doing was something that Walt was doing. I always felt the end product was not mine, but was Walt's, and because of Walt and what we were doing. So I had a real hard time with trying to think. I mean, I didn't get egotism about everything that I was doing. I just felt that uh, it was my job. 
you know, and it's really funny because all the 50 years later, all of a sudden you're something special and you thought, wait a minute, it was just a job. I was just doing my job. But I did realize that what we were doing at Disney and not, not I, we use the word we, was special and that everything that we were doing for Disneyland and for Walt, and that's in the, in the movie industry as well, was special. So I think it meant that being part of his organization, getting to know him and work with him was what was special. Not that anything that you did ever was special. It was just, like I said, just pleasing him was the most important thing. And a lot of people said, well, he never thanks you. I said, if he gives you another project to work on, he's thanking you. (laughs) You know, I mean, seriously. You know, Mm -hmm. yeah. And I do know that one of my best guys I worked with, best friends I had was T. He and T. He had been fired by Walt seven times. And Walt would say, you know, where the hell's T? Let's get T back here. And then T told me one time, he said, well, I said, Walt, I disagree with you. And Walt said, if you continue to disagree with me, I'm going to fire you. And he said, well, you'll have to fire me since you're fired. But T had a certain flair, and Walt knew his flair. So when it was time to get T back, T came back. And so I did it seven times. <laughs> wow. Yeah, no, that that's a beautiful story. Uh, yes, it is. Yeah, yeah. because he never, Walt never held a grudge, never held a grudge, unless you got to be a real dipstick and, <laughs> and you'd had to be a dipstick in front of him and argue with him or something, but I don't know. No, I think the pleasure was just being part of his organization and being part of the team. And that that's what was special. And now, of course, I'm the only one that's semi-alive, so all of a sudden I become something special. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> well, there's, there's about a half a dozen of us that are alive. I don't know. I'm getting a lot of attention I, I'm not too sure about. <laughs> no, really, seriously, it's embarrassing because Walt always used to say, we never use the word I, we use the word we. And I never forgot that. Mm-hmm. And that's why I appreciate you sharing these stories about the other people you worked with. Yeah. You know, it's great to hear about you, but it's also great to hear about that team, that we that worked on these things together. Yeah. yeah. So what did you love most about what you did with all the different things? Was there something that was just the most enjoyable? Well, first of all, uh <laughs> They were all enjoyable, but I think it'll it'll boil back really to the small world facade and the clock. I think that's probably the strongest statement of something that I did because, and I can use the word I in this particular case, I designed that and built a model on it in six working days. And that thing is 300 feet long. And so I'm very proud of that. But we had a short time frame to do it in. And I just loved every second of it and, and it, and it went over really well. And I think it's, it's probably one of the most beautiful pieces of architecture in Disneyland is uh, the facade of small world and the clock. So I'm the most, oh, well, of course there's the tower of the four winds. I'm very, very proud of that. That was beautiful. And that, that's a beautiful little story all in itself. Right. I understand why it couldn't, but it is too bad that we didn't get the Tower of the Four Winds to come back yeah, out here, yeah. I think. Well, the interesting thing about it, I didn't know they were going to bring it back. And if I'd known they were going to bring it back, and I didn't want them to bring it back, but I thought if they were really serious about bringing it back, I know exactly where I would have put it. But as it turned out, it didn't come back. But that's another story all by itself. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Now, you just mentioned that because you know you are you know, someone who worked on these things and and you know you're one of the half a dozen or so people that are still around we can talk to that you're getting a lot of attention now and get you know, a lot of people are interviewing you and yeah but is there anything that you haven't been asked yet that you would kind of like people to ask you know maybe a story that you'd like to tell or just something that you want to share that no question has ever given you the chance to do that. <laughs> no, no, I don't think so. No, every question has been asked that I can possibly think of. Really, seriously, there are some other little stories uh, that have taken place in the park that we don't really talk <laughs> about. What the high school kids do on graduation night, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> we, won't, we won't talk about that and what they do when they're in the rides. So. 
Uh, no, no, not really. I think everything is pretty well covered. Uh, to be honest with you, I can't think of anything that hasn't been covered. I'm not surprised. I, we have to thank Jeff for what he did with the book. Uh, I think that we've got to give a standing ovation to Jeff and to Marie for the book, because without Marie, the book would never have been done, because she communicated for two solid years via the little computer of hers, feeding Jeff everything that he needed to know. And, of course, I don't think anyone could have done a better job on it, because when he did the book, he did me word for word. And no writers will do that. I've had other people that wanted to write for me, and they weren't going to tell the stories the way they wanted to tell the story rather than let me tell it the way it really was. And so everyone that reads the book, I think, realizes that it sounds like me talking because it is me talking. And uh, I think that's great. I think they really really feel (laughs) rolly when they read the book. Right. Yeah, we definitely appreciate Jeff and Marie both for making that happen and allowing you to to tell those stories in your own voice. Well, she and I, not only did she continue, you know, contacting him and everything, but she and I would have our own little personal work sessions and she'd give me her opinion on stuff. And so her opinion was very valid, too, in what we were doing and some of the important things that could be said. So, well, you know, all I can say is I couldn't have had a better life and the timing was beautiful because those are the golden years anyway. I think the bottom line, what I remember the most and, and really makes me feel so good inside was the freedom to be able to be free and do what you did. And uh, and that was not just being a designer, but I think working for the organization and the freedom that the organization gave you was something that's just built inside. So being born in a cartoonist, enjoying the humor of being a cartoonist and then have the freedom of all of that, I think is so very, very special. So you have to have to take that in in as part of it, you know. Definitely, yes. Um, And that leads very nicely into the last two questions that I want to ask you just to kind of wrap up here. Um, First of all, what inspires you? What inspires me? I think that's kind of interesting because we'll go back a ways. I can't go back to when I was four or five years old. <laughs> but what inspires me now and what always has inspired me was seeing something I'd never seen before in the way of art. And so because I'm self-trained, I had no formal training whatsoever. So what I did was if I saw something I really liked, I had to trace it, draw it, paint it, because I was inspired by it. And so I think that's a, that's the whole thing, is finding something that you've never seen before that you think is gorgeous. And I know that uh, Louise Nevelson is a sculptress, and I saw, I bought a postcard of hers when I was at the World's Fair. And she, what she did, she just put a lot of different pieces of wood, turned pieces of wood and chairs and everything, and put them all together and then paint them black or paint them white. And so she'd do these great assemblages and I was so inspired by her that I had to do about four assemblages because it was just it was an incredible time thing and it was an incredible thing to do and see. So what you do is you see something you've never seen before, you fall madly in love with it, and then you have an affair with it by doing it. So and the same thing was Calder. I fell in love with mobiles and I'm still in love with mobiles. So it was the fact of seeing something again that I'd never seen before and saying I can build that and then try and build it. And I think anyone that's creative at all should always have that desire to see something they've never seen before and then find it and be excited about it and have it uh, help you with whatever it is you're you're doing. And and it's been that way all the way down the line. I always love that. And we can see the results of a lot of that in the things that you've done coming out of those things that you had never seen and just being so fascinated by them. So that's wonderful. And then last, before we wrap up, a lot of people listening have their own dreams. And maybe that's to work for Disney. Maybe it's something else entirely. Maybe it has nothing to do with Disney, but they just, they have this dream, but maybe they're afraid or, or they've forgotten. They've just kind of pushed it away. What advice do you have for that person? You got you to gotta believe in your crazy ideas and uh, 
color outside the lines. <laughs> Do the research, yeah. And don't give up. No, no, never give up. No. You have to keep your energy level high. And for some ungodly known reason, I used to have an awful lot of energy, more than I really needed, but I had an incredible energy and incredible drive. And a lot of it had to do with making some extra money. (laughs) (laughs) When I did my little push-down toys, it was all based on not being clever, doing something never been done before, but I could make a buck. I just interviewed Jim Corcus not too long ago. And he told me that was part of why he started writing books. Part of it was because of wanting to create this. Part of it was he needed to make some money. There's nothing wrong with that as being part of your motivation, I think. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing how survival can be very important. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah, Yeah, it can definitely be very motivating. And speaking of writing books, I just want to take a minute here before we officially wrap up to mention formally your book, It's Kind of a Cute Story, and then the audio, things that have come after it. Yeah. And uh, you know, give people a, a chance to make sure they know about that and that, that they can go get those. Yeah. We just heard that uh, the books are now going to be used as uh, textbooks. We had one professor that we met with, and he had every one of the people in his class have a book, and that was their textbook. And I, I'm sure it was a design class. University of Michigan was the one, and I don't know about this new one. But I think that's a, a compliment to think that my book is becoming a textbook. I think if you really read it carefully, there is the formula of designing a ride in it in so many areas. And uh, I take you right through how I did them, and, and that's the formula. That's great that they're being used that way. That that's, that is definitely a compliment. Yeah. And I'm going to put links to everything when I release this episode. So people can go to it's kind of a cute story.com uh-huh. is the website, and there's a Facebook page. And, of course, they're available on Amazon. Yeah. I'll put links to all of that so people can get to it. Oh, great, great, great. Thank you so much for your time and your stories and sharing your memories with me and and with the listeners. It's an honor to not only get to talk to you, but to get to hear the stories about these others as well. And I really appreciate it. I appreciate doing it for you. And it turned out to be a lot easier than I thought. No, it turned out to be really nice. It really did. That brings us to the end of this week's show. A special thank you to Rolly Crump for being my guest and to you for listening. Next time we begin an interview with former Walt Disney World cast member and current author and show writer Adam Berger. Adam's book, Every Guest is a Hero, Disney's Theme Parks and the Magic of Mythic Storytelling, is incredibly fascinating, and he's got some great stories and information. So come back next time to hear from Adam. If you're currently doing something because of your love for Disney, you've written a book, you're blogging, writing or performing music, art, whatever, and you want to tell people about it and why it matters to you, I want to hear from you. I also want to talk to and hear from people who've worked for Disney, any capacity at the Walt Disney Company. And if you're a Disney guest of any Disney experience and you've had an encounter or an interaction with a cast member that made some extra Disney magic, or you've had any special Disney experience you want to share, or give a compliment or a thank you for anything Disney's done, maybe even including something like some of the things that Rolly worked on or some of the people that he worked with, I would love to hear from you too. In any of those cases, email me at podcast at storiesofthemagic.com or call the listener feedback line at 734-23-STORY and tell me about your experience. You can leave a short message or something that you'd like me to play or read on the show. Tell me about it directly just so that you, know, you can get the story out there to somebody and I can share it anonymously if you'd like. Or if you'd like to be on the show, let me know and we'll talk about it. Remember, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. Choose from titles like Walt Disney, The Mouse That Roared by Jeff Lindbergh, In the Shadow of the Matterhorn by past guest David Smith, or of course my book, Faith in the Magic Kingdom. 
By the way, all three of those were read by Tales from the Mouse House podcast co-host Al Kessel. To download your free audiobook today, go to storiesofthemagic.com slash audible. Again, that's storiesofthemagic.com slash audible for your free audiobook. Speaking of faith in the Magic Kingdom, I'll be at the Disneyana Expo in Garden Grove, California on July 20th, 2014. I'll have copies of both of my books, Faith and the Magic Kingdom and Once Upon Your Time, available for sale at a special show discount. And of course, I'd love to meet you, too. So if you'll be in the area, please stop by the show and say hi. And while you're there, check out all the cool stuff people have for sale and meet some pretty amazing people, too. Subscribe to Stories of the Magic in iTunes, the Xbox Music Store, on the website, or you can hear Stories of the Magic while on the go with Stitcher Smart Radio. If you like the show, please rate and review Stories of the Magic in iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or wherever else you listen to the show and can rate it. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, visit storiesofthemagic.com and leave a comment on the show notes for this or any episode. While you're there, check out the show notes for useful links from each episode. Like I mentioned in this interview, I've got links to all of the stuff that we talked about for Rolly, plus the Facebook page and everything, so you can go right there to get direct links for everything. And if you're listening to this on your Apple device, then the links should also show up directly in the show notes that are there in the podcasting app, if that's how you're listening to it. Like the podcast on Facebook at facebook.com slash storiesofthemagic. Follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash storiesofmagic and tweet out that you're listening. Pin it on Pinterest, plus one on Google+. Tell your friends about the show. Keep letting others know that you're listening so they can join in the magic too. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Stories of the Magic. There will be other days and other stories, but this tale is finished. You've been listening to Stories of the Magic with Randy Crane. If you have feedback, want to share a story of your own, or even be a guest on the show, write to Randy at podcast at storiesofthemagic.com or call our listener feedback line, 734-23-STORY. And don't forget to visit the website, storiesofthemagic.com for show notes from this and every episode and to leave your comments. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, live your dreams and make the magic in your world.